Hi, my name is Colleen. The Old Testament reading is found in Psalm 30, verses 1 through 5 and 11 through 12. I exalt you, Lord, because you pulled me up. You didn't let my enemies celebrate over me. Lord, my God, I cried out to you for help, and you healed me. Lord, you brought me up from the grave, brought me back to life from among those going down to the pit. You who are faithful to the Lord, sing praises to him, give thanks to his holy name. His anger lasts only for a second, but his favor lasts a lifetime. Weeping may stay all night, but by morning, joy. You changed my morning into dancing. You took off my funeral clothes and dressed me up in joy, so that my whole being might sing praises to you and never stop. Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. The word of the Lord. Hi, I'm Martha. The New Testament reading is found in Acts chapter 16, verses 9 to 14. A vision of a man from Macedonia came to Paul during the night. He stood urging Paul, come over to Macedonia and help us. Immediately after he saw the vision, he prepared to leave for the province of Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to proclaim the good news to them. We sailed from Troas, straight from Samothrace, and came to Neapolis the following day. From there we went to Philippi, a city of Macedonia's first district and a Roman colony. We stayed in that city several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the riverbank, where we thought there might be a place for prayer. We sat down and began to talk with the women who had gathered. One of those women was Lydia, a Gentile God-worshipper from the city of Thyatira, a dealer in purple cloth. As she listened, the Lord enabled her to embrace Paul's message. The word of the Lord. Thank you, for, thank you for standing for the uh, gospel reading found in John chapter 15, verses 11 through 15. I have said these things to you, that my joy will be in you, and that your joy will be complete. This is my commandment. Love each other just as I have loved you. No one has greater love than to give up one's life for one's friends. You are my friends. Um, If you do what I command you, I don't call you servants any longer because servants don't know what their master is doing. Instead, I call you friends because everything I heard from my father, I have made known to you. The gospel of the Lord. Let's remain standing as we pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are. And Lord, we thank you for your word to us. We pray now that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would come and open up our eyes and our ears and our minds and our hearts to hear you, to see you, to know you, to trust in you, to become more like you. We pray these things in Jesus' name, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning, everybody. It's great to see you on this sunny Sunday morning. My name's Glenn Packiam. I get to serve here as the pastor at New Life Downtown. We are beginning a new series today called Complete Joy. Complete Joy. And it got me thinking about this word joy. What is joy? How do we use this word? Where do we hear this word? Where does joy come 
from? What is joy at all? And, and I was thinking, you know, maybe one of the places that we hear um, joy talked about is with regard to happiness. We say, well, joy is sort of like happiness, and maybe it's sort of positive emotions. And then other Christians say, no, 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 it's nothing like happiness. It's something completely different, and it's just sort of, you know, it's pain and suffering, actually. And you're like, wait a minute, I'm a little bit confused. Which is it? And then to complicate it, when Christians talk about emotions uh, in church, a lot of times, some of you may be familiar with uh, a, a version of Christianity that says you can only express the quote-unquote positive emotions, you know? And so joy is like, oh yeah, sure, that's the Christian thing. And so it's, ah, happy, happy, joy, joy, everything's great. And then others of us have said, well, I've been on a really meaningful journey, and so I've been able to discover that actually lament and grief and sadness and even anger is all part of what it means to live your life with Christ and how those emotions can be a pathway even to intimacy with God and with others. And we kind of want to choose, well, which is it? Do I need happy emotions? Do I need sad emotions? Which is the Christian life about? Well, as it turns out, the Christian life is a a life of joy. And maybe it's uh, news to you when you think about the Christians that you've known. And you're like, they don't seem like very joyful people. They seem pretty dour, pretty sour. But our understanding of joy needs to be expanded. That it isn't just happy feelings or positive feelings or cheerfulness. There's something deeper uh, than what we've maybe thought about when we think about joy. Now, out there kind of in the world at large, culture, you think about the media stuff, joy is used as just sort of a feeling, a surge of good feelings. Uh, I was thinking about that Netflix special by Marie Kondo on tidying up. You know, it's a Shintoistic guide to minimalism, if you will. And what Marie does is advise us to sort of take an article of clothing and to ask yourself, does this spark joy? And if it does not, get rid of it, you know. And so there is this implicit notion that our stuff should spark joy. And if it doesn't, then get rid of it, find something else. And, you know, thank your house for being a sparker of joy or whatever that may be. And so we think about joy in these strange ways of being connected with stuff or being connected to our circumstances. Several years ago, they did some surveys of Gen Xers, so that would be people probably in their 40s now, um, late 40s even, people who still make Seinfeld references and think it's the greatest sitcom of all time. Uh, Those would be Gen Xers. And when Gen Xers were going into college, they said, hey, what do you think you need to make your life great? What's the key to sort of happiness or the good life? And 70% of Gen Xers says, oh, it's wealth. It's making loads of money. That's kind of the key. And millennials, uh, that's, uh, that's people who are in your 20s and 30s, um, said, well, actually, we, more of us agree. 75% of millennials when they were in college said, yes, the key is wealth. It's having a lot of resources to be able to do stuff. And then, and then a, a, another recent survey said that actually one out of four millennials would quit their job if they could just be famous. And so now it's not just fa- it's not just fortune we're after; it's actually fame. And so one out of four millennials said, "You know what? I would trade being a doctor or a lawyer, stable income, maybe prestigious career or whatever. I would trade that if I could just have a lot of YouTube followers." And so it's an interesting time we live in. And we have these connections where our sense of joy or well-being seems to be connected either with stuff or with our status. And, and, and the question is, is that what all there is to joy? Maybe some of you have spent some time overseas or traveling and seeing 
Christians in different parts of the world. When I was 19, we took a trip with our, our college, Oral Roberts University, and I spent a, a whole month um, in Nigeria. And we lived with pastors there, and we uh, ministered and played at a few different kind of uh, rural churches. And some of you that have traveled, you've been in experiences like this, maybe in other parts of the world where uh, their economic conditions are lower, but it seems to be that they have something else that's carrying them. And so I, I have vivid memories of being with uh, the, the women and children, particularly in this uh, in, in this area, rural part of Nigeria, and, and seeing them dancing with so much joy. Now, we don't want to romanticize that and to say, oh, look at that, that's so great. I'm sure if you spent longer than a month, you would recognize life is hard. And, and there's a lot more that, that work that they want done in their own communities and all of that. And yet, there's something about that that critiques our Western assumptions that joy is connected to stuff and status. It critiques, it makes us question that and just say, well, are we so sure? This series, Complete Joy, is not simply a series on joy. It's actually a series on the book of Philippians. And it's, the, it's a letter that Paul writes to a church in Philippi. And Philippians, because of how much Paul talks about rejoicing and joy, Philippians is often nicknamed the epistle of joy. It's in Philippians that Paul opens by talking about his joy and ends in the final chapter by saying, rejoice in the Lord. And again, I say rejoice. And so if you were to guess what Paul was going through when he wrote this, you might guess that Paul was on top of the world, that he was leading a growing church network, that he was, his book had just released and on Amazon was doing well, being favorably reviewed. You might think that he was being invited to different conferences. You're like, Paul is like on top of his game. He's winning at life. That's why he's telling us to rejoice. Wrong. <laughs> Paul, as it turns out, is writing from prison. Paul, this is one of the letters that is called in the New Testament a prison epistle, a prison letter. This is Paul writing to a church that he was part of developing and founding, and, and it's a letter full of joy. And so right off the bat, we have to say, well, maybe we need to reframe how we think about joy. And over the course of this series, it's going to take us all through the fall toward uh, Advent, toward uh, right before Thanksgiving. And so all along the series, we'll have a little bit of a few moments of returning to this macro theme of joy. And I, I want this morning to take a close look at the backdrop of this letter. So Philippians 1, verse 1, we get introduced to some of these characters. Paul and Timothy, Timothy is his uh, protege, is his understudy, if you will, servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. And now we realize, okay, the church here is not just a startup. There's actually some layers. There's some structure to it. The, the, the Christian movement was not just an organic kind of house church. They, they very early on developed layers of structure. Structure is not a bad thing. And then he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I want to just pause here for a moment. Since this is the first, the start of the series, it's worth just saying, okay, so what's the deal with Philippi? Like, who are these people? What is this city? So a little bit of history and geography, a map of Philippi. Yes, we love maps. Okay, so this is kind of this region of Macedonia, and Philippi is a city in it, and there's, you can see the proximity to some of the other cities. Rome is way over here. Philippi is actually close to a mountain, a mountain called Pangaeus. It's close to a couple of rivers. To the north were some mountains where there were gold mines. 
And this is kind of a closer look at the, 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 the city itself. There was a road that ran to the southeast of it, kind of a rocky ridge road called the Via Ignatia, and it connected Philippi to a port city. So that made it uh, kind of in the hub of commerce and, and life. It became a Roman colony, but not only was it a Roman colony, it, it eventually became the site of one of the most famous, most crucial Roman military battles. So in 42 BC, some of you that are, you know, you just were reading about Roman history last night. You only just were brushed up on this. Others of you, you'll shake the cobwebs and remember, oh yeah, Julius Caesar gets assassinated. And, and, and so then there's this kind of plot, a civil war breaks out and you're trying to figure out who's on which side. And so there's a, there's a chap named Brutus, if you've seen the play Etu Brute. And there's another chap named Cassius, and then there's two other guys, Mark Antony and Octavian, and that's roughly the two sides that are fighting in the civil war against each other. Well, it's in Philippi that um, Octavian and Mark Antony defeat Brutus and Cassius, and later on Octavian then becomes the sole ruler, nicknames himself or allows himself to be nicknamed Augustus the Great One, and launches the, Julian, the Julio-Claudian dynasty of Roman Caesars. Augustus becomes the first of the great Caesars, the first of five, all of whom reigned during the time of the New Testament. It's fascinating backdrop, but enough about that. And so Philippi not only is this, this, this site of a famous uh, Roman military battle, the, the hinge point in Rome becoming a loose federation and republic into an empire, but Philippi also was a place where uh, retired Roman soldiers were given land and retirement. So that when they, when they um, had fought, maybe they'd fought on the wrong side of the civil war, if you will, and they'd lost all of their land and property in Italy on that Roman uh, a sliver of land, they would have said, well, where do we go? We can't go back to Rome. And Caesar was like, we don't want you back in Rome. It's already crowded. And so he said, well, I own a lot of colonies. We've got a lot of places here. How about you have Philippi? And so in trot all these retired Roman generals saying, excuse me, I'll take that. Yes, thank you very much. We'll take that. You can imagine how um, much tension maybe existed in Philippi. But the church in Philippi began because Paul goes there and the backdrop there is in Acts 16. We heard it being read in our New Testament reading. Paul goes there and makes his first European convert to Christianity. She's a business lady named Lydia. And Lydia, the book of Acts tells us, was a dealer of purple cloth. That may not seem like much to us, but that means I, somehow she found herself running a very wealthy business. A purple cloth was wanted by people in royalty. It was a, a rare sort of thing. Um, this was before, you, you know, paints and watercolors and dyes and that sort of so, so, so she was a wealthy tradeswoman. And in fact, she becomes the patron of the church plant in Philippi. But it's also in Philippi that there's this... Um, a slave girl who has this ability to tell people's fortunes who starts running around and saying, Paul, you are the servant of the Most High God. And Paul, shockingly, turns, recognizes that this is a, a demonic thing and drives the demon out of her and the, her owners or masters get really upset about this because now she is of no more economic use to them. So it's good for her. Paul's freed her, but bad for the people who are relying on their economic income from this slave girl. And so they get mad, and they stir up all the other who's who's in Philippi and throw Paul and Silas in prison. Maybe you remember this story, right? Paul and Silas in prison. They're there in chains. Silas starts rattling his chains, and it starts to get to a little cadence, you know. 
And Paul says, Silas, I like that. Keep that groove going, you know? And he starts singing. And it was about midnight that they burst out in this hymn. And then all of a sudden, there's an earthquake, and the doors are open, and everyone goes free. And there's a jailer who's like, oh, no. See, the, the, the Roman um, authorities here are going to want my neck. And, and so he's about to kill himself. And, and, and Paul says, no, don't do that. We're not interested in anybody losing their life. In fact, we're here to offer you salvation. And the jailer says, what what do I do to be saved? And Paul tells him, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, okay, that is such good news. You got to tell my family too. And so imagine this relationship, this jailer in Philippi, who's like Paul's prison guard. Now he's like, come to my house. Let's have a meal together. Let's take care of your wounds and cuts. And Paul's like telling him about Jesus and they all get saved. And that's how the church in Philippi is born by a wealthy businesswoman and a converted Roman jailer. Isn't that remarkable? So Paul has a great affection for these people. These are not uh, random strangers. These are not people that, uh, that he's only heard about. Some of his letters are written to places that he's never been, but these are people that he knows really well. Now, where is Paul when he's writing Philippians? There's a couple theories on this, and theories are about all we have. For a lot of years, scholars thought, oh, he's writing from Rome because he references a Praetorian guard and all this stuff. But actually, the more we've discovered about how the Roman Empire was, a Praetorian guard could have been in many different cities. And it's more likely, more scholars today believe that Paul was actually writing from Ephesus. And one of the reasons they believe that is because if you were in prison in the ancient world, number one, you had not necessarily been proven guilty. You were just awaiting a court hearing. And while you awaited a court hearing, you were kept in jail. And not only that, they would not feed you or provide any clothing to you. So if you needed anything, supplies, parchment, food, someone would have to bring it to you. And so it's very likely that it was Ephesus because from that map we looked at earlier, you can see that Ephesus is a bit closer to Philippi than Rome would have been. And so Paul's writing this letter to thank people for the provisions that they've given him, to thank them for their support and for their love. And so today, we're going to look at these first few verses, the opening verses of Philippians 1, and talk about companionship and confidence. Companionship and confidence. What, or if you'd like, what to do if you find yourself in a Roman prison. Um, Philippians 1, verses 3 through 5, Paul says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine because uh, for you all making my prayer with joy. And now we see that word already, joy. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, and then skip ahead to verse seven, it is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. And then verse 8, for God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. This is strong language. Now, maybe for us, it's like, well, it's just another greeting card, you know, like if you were to go, go to Walgreens or something and try to buy a thank you card for someone, you can't help but find a card that is just dripping with sentimentality, you know, oh, the light of the heavens shines for you and my friendship, but you're the wind beneath my wings or blah, blah, blah. But in the ancient world, nobody was gushing like that. People didn't write letters like that. They were much more composed, you know. But here's Paul. He can hardly contain himself. He's like, I yearn for you with all of this affection. Oh, I love you. He all but is saying that. And so the first thing I want to say about 
what we learn from, from reading this letter from prison is that companionship is the joy of life. Companionship is the joy of life. It's not our stuff, it's not our status, it's not fortune or fame or anything else that we might have, but it's actually the relationships that we have with one another. Companionship is the joy of life. Paul uses language that is, is actually stronger than maybe some of the words we might think of to use for friends. He uses words like partners, he uses words like partakers, and some of those words, both of those words are related to this Greek word koinonia, which oftentimes in the first century was used to describe a business partnership. If it, some of you in the room, you, you've gone in on a business with a friend, you've been co-owners, well, you know that that changes the nature of your friendship because now you don't just have sort of a social friendship, You're now, you now both have skin in the game. You now have something invested in it. And that's what Paul's saying. We're partners and partakers. In other words, your good is my good. And my good is your good. And we're kind of in this together. We're linked. We're connected. There's a companionship, a sharing together that is part of our friendship. When I think about that, I think, you know, what would it be like to sort of put a personal point on this notion and to say, all of you sitting in here today, you are the reason for someone else's joy. And maybe there's someone who's going to put their head on their pillow later tonight and think, God, I'm so thankful for Ian and Bree Spear. God, I'm so thankful for Matt Browning. God, I'm so thankful for Steve and Jossie Birch. God, these people are, oh, they just, they make me realize that it's going to be okay. Isn't it amazing to think that even your simple, ordinary acts of kindness and love and affection and sharing could be the reason for someone else's joy? And what if you flip that and to say, well, God, can I let someone else be Part of the reason for my joy. Look, we live in an age that is so driven by rivalries and competitiveness. And so we think if someone else is winning, I must be losing. And if someone else is experiencing something great, we think, well, that's because I'm not, you know, and here I am suffering away, you know. Someone else is taking yet another vacation and you're like, oh, dear God, nice for them, you know. But what if we could flip it and just say, not only might I be a reason for someone else's joy, but what if I let the people around me be a reason for my joy? Where I look at them and I say, man, that's amazing. I'm, your success is my joy. Your um, flourishing in the faith is my joy. Maybe our purest version of this is when we, as parents, you know, watch your children. Uh, just yesterday, I was watching my son, Jonas, playing soccer. And, and I'm watching him and at the sideline, and I'm watching every little move. He's in the service there, trying not to embarrass him, sitting next to another one of his soccer buddies. And, uh, and, and I'm watching his every move, every pass he defends, every, uh, every pass he connects, uh, every through ball, every little thing. I'm like, yes, man, you did that so well. And it's like the greatest play ever. Why? Because parents are not in competition with their children. And when they are, it's kind of weird. You know, like I've seen that dad on the soccer field who's like, that's pretty good, but have you seen what I can do? You know, that's kind of weird. Like, it, it shouldn't be like that. Parents are not, they, they actually want their kids to outshine them and excel them. They want to just stand back and say, yeah! I th you get the feeling that this is what Paul is doing. He's like, I'm in prison, 
But every report I hear about you, I'm like, yay, God, I'm so happy for this companionship. It's interesting, in, 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 even from a non-religious perspective, companionship is a carrier of joy and, and, and well-being. In the 1930s, um, some researchers at Harvard began a long-term study. In fact, it may well be the longest study done on human happiness. It's taken place over 70-plus years with over 700 participants. And what they did was they found teens in a kind of uh, a, a lower economic neighborhood, and then they found some freshmen and sophomores at Harvard College then, as it was called. And they tracked these people for over seven years. They had four, four different directors of this study. Maybe some of you have seen the TED Talk about this. 20 million people have, so odds are, you know, you've seen it. But as four different directors, over the course of these 70 plus years, they would check in on these people every couple years. And they wouldn't just do surveys, they would do home visits, they would do in-depth questions, contextual questions, they had access to their medical records, and you know what they discovered? They said that the, the number one connection, or the number one um, contributing factor to health and well-being was social connections. If people had social connections in their life, they were going to experience a better degree of health and well-being. And conversely, loneliness kills. When they saw people who became more and more isolated, it began, their health began to t- deteriorate. This is kind of interesting. Even for men in their 50s, if their cholesterol was high and one's cholesterol was low, that, the cholesterol level was not even as big of a factor as their friendships as far as health in their 80s. If men in their 50s had the right relationships around them, they were more likely to be healthy in their 80s than if their cholesterol was lower. Now, I'm not saying forget, you know, as long as you have good friendships, go ahead and enjoy the french fries, you know. I'm not saying that. I can't give you medical advice, be very clear. But they're saying that social connections is a big part of it. And secondly, they discovered that it wasn't the number of connections, but the closeness of the connections. So if you're sitting here and you're like, well, I'm an introvert, I don't want like 50 billion friends. You don't have to have Facebook friends. You just need to have some real ones. You need to have some actual people around you that you cultivate these connections. And then they said, and thirdly, it wasn't only good for their health, it was actually good for brains. That brains tended to stay sharper and more engaged when they had strong, good relationships around them. It's so interesting to me. But you know what, what a study like that cannot show is how the, the kinds of friendships that we're talking about are not just generic friendships. That's not what Paul's talking about. He's talking about kingdom companionship. And so the second thing I want to say is that God is the substance and the source of these kinds of companionship. God is the very substance of it. Listen again in verse 3 through 5. Paul says, I thank my God every time I mention you in my prayers. I'm thankful for all of you every time I pray. And it's always a prayer full of joy. And I'm glad because of the way you've been my partners in the ministry of the gospel. From the time you first believed it until now. You've been my partners in my poker nights. Nothing wrong with that. Totally fine. It's a great way to make friends. Maybe. Or lose money. I don't know. Either one. And Paul's like, the real reason your friendship is a source of joy is because we're partners in the gospel together. There's a, there's a God dimension to this that makes it nourishing. God is the substance and the source. 
one of the um, one of the books I read last year or earlier this year was a biography of Paul written by a New Testament scholar at Duke Divinity, and and he said Paul kind of played missionary snakes and ladders. You know the game snakes and ladders where you can climb, then you slide down. And Paul kind of played missionary snakes and ladders, and what he meant by that was Paul had so many different relational networks that he was always leveraging for kingdom good. And so even think about Philippi, you've got a patronage sort of network with Lydia, and then you have the jailer and his household is a family network, and then there's Jewish synagogue, I mean, there's all of these different things. Paul's going to find any angle that he can to make a kingdom connection, right? This is not the, 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 the kind of the, the schmaltzy salesperson. This is the person who's able to say, God, all my relationships belong to you and under your kingship. What if you begin to think that way? That you don't just say, well, these are my Jesus friends, or these are my drinking buddies, these are my fun friends, these are my like church friends. No, no, no. What if in every relationship you say, I am a follower of Jesus. God, what kingdom good can you bring out of this? With my hiking buddies, with my meal group mates, what if, with my old uh, you know, army buddies. What, how can I find a way for you to have a kingdom inroad in my existing networks? That's how Paul thought. Paul thought about his all, all of his relationships as being one web under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And he said, God, you're the substance, you're the source, so help me connect, make these connections. I've been um, on staff at New Life Church for 19 years, which is getting to be a long time. And, uh, <laughs> and I'm very grateful for it. Thank you, and thanks for that too. That's very nice. It's okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And, and when I first joined the staff, I, I, I was actually for a few months uh, an intern with the worship ministry right out of college. And I remember someone saying to me, one of the pastors, they said, you know, what we believe at New Life is we believe that relationships are the ministry. That the essence of what we do is not the program or the event, but the essence of what we do is the relationship. And I thought, well, that's really great. And so early on, Holly and I got married a, a year after my starting here at New Life. And we began leading a small group right away. So today, what we're inviting you into, joining a meal group, leading a meal group, meal group, all that stuff, that's the stuff that we've been doing for like almost 20 years. And some of you, like Jim and Martha, even longer than that, right? And I remember we, we, there was only two small groups that were part of the college ministry at New Life. Uh, it was called The Mill. And one was led by the college pastor, Aaron Stern, and the other was led by Holly and I. And so people just flocked into our townhome, didn't know when to leave, didn't take a hint at 11 o'clock at night when, when I'm like closing the blinds and turning off lamps. But this is what you do. Relationships are the ministry. And, oh, and there's always been, in every season of my life, there's always been a group of people that I've that I've sort of called together and have had, let's read the Bible together, let's pray together, let's, let's, in, let's shape one another. Because if we're not doing that, then where is the kingdom good? The kingdom travels through relationships. My life now is a, a little bit different in my, in my role. I have the joy of working with all of the congregation leads. So you hear us say that New Life Downtown is one of six congregations. In my midweek role, I get to work with all of the other congregation leads and coordinate our efforts from Nueva Vida to uh, New Life Friday night to north to downtown and to say, okay, what, are, what, are, what uh, things can we do that are actually better if they're together? What things can we do that actually are better if we contextualize and do alone? And I get the joy of, of leading that team. I get the joy of helping to develop the, 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 the pastors and ministry directors at New Life Church. 
which is also getting to be a large group. Uh, there are 130 full-time staff at New Life Church. 75 are ministry directors or pastors. And I have the joy of, say, of gathering with them in different seasons throughout the year and say, okay, we're going to study this together. We're going to learn this together. We're going to stretch ourselves in this way together. And so a lot of my relational work looks like meeting with some of you and with meeting with staff and ministry leaders. Sometimes it's with pastors who are around the country. We're calling one another on a regular basis saying, how can we strengthen one another? But see, the, the heart of that is all the same. Relationships are the ministry. God is the substance of those connections. But the other part of this is that God is the source of it. If you, if you look back at verse 3, Paul says prayer or pray three times in that first verse. He says, I'm praying for all of you. And he says, I, am, I mention you in my prayers and I thank my God for you. One of the keys about kingdom companionship is that we recognize that God is actually the source of it. That God is the source of it. You know, I sometimes hear people talk about gratitude. It's a good thing to be grateful and every day I want to you know, have a gratitude journal and post about things I'm thankful for. And all of that's wonderful. It's better to be grateful than not. And it's probably better for our mental health and all of those kinds of things. But as a Christian, we wouldn't stop short of, and, and just say, let's be grateful. We would say, to whom are you grateful? <laughs> if someone reminded me this morning of, of G.K. Chesterton, the, the British novelist who, who said, it was in staring out at the beauty of nature and realizing that I had no one to thank that made me start to explore a belief in God. You look at beautiful relationships, you look at a beautiful sunset, and you say, I feel so much, so much gratitude. And the question is, and to whom are you grateful? Well, Paul is not shy about it. He knows God is the source of these things. So my gratitude is aimed at God as the source. I thank God for these relationships. Gratitude is powerful, but it's more powerful when you know who to thank Companions are a great joy, but it's even better when you know who the source of that joy actually is. And that leads us to the third and final thing. We've skipped a verse as we've read these first few eight verses of Philippians 1. And the verse that we've skipped is maybe the most famous one in this whole chapter. Verse 6, Paul says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. The reason for Paul's confidence, the reason for Paul's confident joy is definitely not stuff or status. Yes, it's partly because of his companions, but it's really because of Jesus. Jesus is the reason for Paul's confidence. Jesus is the reason for our confidence. Paul's saying, look, you're pretty great, but ultimately my confidence is not in what good people you are. Ultimately, my confidence is that the one who began the work will complete it. And so he's thinking about these Philippians. Maybe he's thinking about Lydia. Maybe he's thinking about the jailer and his household. And he's like, hey, I was there when Jesus revealed himself to you. I was there when Jesus began that good work. And Paul says, you know what? I'm sure there's ups and downs. I'm sure you've hurt one another. I'm sure the church in Philippi had a mixture of Macedonians and Roman, retired Roman soldiers. And there were some tensions. And I'm sure there was all kinds of class divisions, race divisions, all of that stuff. And Paul goes, look, 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 look. I can still be joyful because I, my confidence is not tied to who you are. My confidence is tied to who Jesus is. Amen. And he who became, amen. 
And he who began the work is the one who will complete it. You imagine a sports team, you know, wherever LeBron James goes, you're like, oh, that team is now a contender in the playoffs. You know, there's always a team where there's one star performer that you're like, oh, we're going to be okay, you know. Jesus is that teammate times like, what, a billion. Where if I'm looking out at our lives and I'm like, nah, Jason, I mean, you're a pretty good guy. But, and then someone says, no, we're not just asking you to evaluate Jason. We're asking you to evaluate Jesus at work in Jason. And then we're like, oh, well, no, no question. He's going to make it, <laughs> you know. If you just ask me about Jason, I'm like, ah, I'm not sure. But Jesus at work in Jim and Martha? Yes, that's going to happen. That's going to, and that's what Paul starts to do. Is he starts to recognize Jesus is the reason for our confidence. And everything is different when you know the end of the story. Paul alludes to the day of Christ Jesus. Everything is different when you know the end of the story. That's why I couldn't enjoy the new Lion King this time around. You know, it's like beautiful scenery. I enjoy it. It's great. But I just wasn't moved because I'm like, I know what happens. Simba's going to come back, you know. Like even Mufasa dying, I'm sad. But you know what? He lives in you, Simba. You know what's happening. But everything is better. And this is why Paul, in a, in a, in a jail somewhere, maybe in Ephesus, uh, looking at Christians being persecuted, and he says, yeah, yeah, that's not so good. Yeah, that's not great. But you know what? I know how this ends. I know that there will be a day of Christ Jesus, a great day of salvation. And not just that. Notice that Paul uses the word completion, not just conclusion. You know, things can end without actually being completed. If you don't believe me, watch one of those stupid postmodern movies where it, like, you're like, and what happens? And they don't tell you, and it just ends, end roll credits, you know? Some of you love those kinds of, I hate those movies. Like, give me the fairy tale where all the loose ends are tied up. That's what I want. And that's what Paul's saying. He's like, look, this isn't just one day going to end. It's going to be completed. There's a difference between a completion and a conclusion. And Paul says Jesus is going to complete what he began. Ultimately, our joy is unswerving because Jesus is unfailing. Jesus is unfailing. He will come again. He will complete what he began. And that's the reason you can be confident in your own life and in the lives of the people that you're in relationship with. So you're going to get out there today and you're going to join up for a meal group and you're going to join up for a team and you're going to serve and it's going to be great until somebody hurts your feelings. And that is going to happen. You're going to be part of a meal group that you're like, that was kind of disappointing. You're going to be part of a team that you're like, that didn't seem very fun. It's going to happen. And then you'll say, but you know what? Jesus began a work in them, and Jesus will complete it. And the reason for my joy is not because I found the perfect church. I found the perfect small group. The reason for your joy is because Jesus is the captain of this ship. Amen? Let's bow our heads this morning. As we get ready to come to the Lord's table, we're going to open up our hearts, and we're free to confess and to say, Jesus, we haven't loved our neighbors as ourselves. We, some of you are in here and you're like, man, I, I haven't really thought about cultivating the right kind of companions around me. I haven't really thought about how this life in Christ opens us up to others, to other partakers. Some of you, uh, you you've maybe made, gone the other way. You've made too much of it. Everything is about your friendships and your relationships and your whole life is 
obsessed with who's hurt you and who's let you down and who's been good to you. And, and Jesus is saying, shh, come back to me as the center of this. And some of you need to be turned back to Jesus. Others of you are here and you're just kind of in the middle of the story and you're a little discouraged. You might be like Paul in prison saying, well, how does this, how do I know this is going to be okay? Because Jesus who began the work will complete it. So let's just bow our hearts, bow our heads even now and begin to pray and begin to welcome the work of the Holy Spirit in us as we prepare to come to the table.